Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. Good morning. Where's your coffee? Dun, 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 dun. You see my t-shirt? I did, and I have mine too. I don't know her name. I know she was with you at the Brooke sent it to Brooke. Look yeah. at my t-shirt. Good middle yeah. of the night. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's very great. cute. I just sent her a message and told her thank you so much and how thoughtful that was. Yeah, I prefer the uh, top you're wearing now than to wear having you wear the t-shirt anyway. <laughs> yeah, I'm a tank top kind of gal. Um, so. We uh, we just recorded on Sunday, and it's Tuesday, and we're recording a little early because, unfortunately, you are going to have another surgery, which I know you're not too stoked about. Oh, yeah. I'm really jazzed about having my fourth eye surgery in the last five months. It's uh, it's exciting. <laughs> yeah. I want to keep, I wanna keep uh, an annuity going for my eye surgeon. <laughs> <laughs> so, hopefully, this is the last one. And you're going to be as good as new, maybe even better. Uh, yeah, I'm going to go in today. It's as you said, it's Tuesday, which is an odd day for us. But I'm going to go in early uh, down to St. George to see the doctor pre-op because I'm having a little issue with the eye. And before I go to surgery tomorrow, I want to be sure that the timing is right for me to be having surgery tomorrow. I don't want to like I, I want to be absolutely certain because I do not want to do this again. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's almost as if it's sort of a routine thing now. I know exactly what's going to happen, exactly what to expect. And, you know, it just, I don't want, I never wanted to be knowledgeable on this issue. Yeah. I <laughs> this feel. is not my issue. I so, feel. yeah. So we are recording out of order, which is fine. I mean, people don't need to know that because it's going to be coming out on a Wednesday anyway. So, yeah, no, I'm just saying because we don't have a lot of fluff today. Because we were just we just recorded a couple of days ago, but we've been wanting to record for a while on um, fibroids and myomectomy because it's one of the topics we haven't covered yet. Um, The last time we discussed this was when I didn't know who Meghan Markle was. (laughs) So that was way back when we were still Dr. Stu's podcast. So I thought it would be fun. An Um, innocent time it was. I know you're like. You don't know who Meghan Markle is? I'm like, nope. <laughs> yeah, people can go back and listen to that. I think the title of the podcast is, you know, who is Meghan Markle and has she had her baby yet or something like that. Um, so that was like in 2018, 17? Yeah, way back when, back in the old days. So um, I know you did a deep dive and, I, and I'm so grateful and excited to hear more about that. Yeah, well, we'll get to that in just a second. I just want to say that the days here... Between seminars for me, I've been very peaceful and quiet. I really like that. But it sounds like the busy, uh, the birth world has been quite busy. Um, I've been hearing from lots of people about some great births and some odd births and some stressful births and some sad births. And I guess that that's life in general. And I'm glad that I'm in the middle of it as far as hearing about it. I do, as I said before, I, I sort of miss being at births. But I just don't miss being on call. So it's it's a trade-off right now that I'm still figuring out my equilibrium and where it lies. Yeah. Uh, 
I did have a conversation with our friend Beth this week, and she had a very fun reunion with uh, two twins who had twins that Beth and I were involved with both of them, Debbie and mm-hmm. Sarah. Mm-hmm. And several years ago, they both had twins um, in the same year, I believe. So it's interesting that twins having twins. Yeah. Uh, we hear about it, but they had a reunion and it was good. And I saw some pictures and it was great. And, and Leah uh, B, the doula was there too. Leah Berkwist was there. And uh, so that's fun. Uh, I, one of the few things I miss about not being in Los Angeles is seeing those people and, and hanging out. But again, I, I couldn't be happier out here. Yeah. And then uh, as of today, which is only a few days since last time, my paper is still at the publisher on <laughs> twins, but I'm really excited when that will eventually come through. I'm hoping there's no obstacles and uh, you know, it's just a weird time in the world right now to get things published that are sort of out of the mainstream. So we'll just see if what happens. Yeah. I'm excited to hear. And then I just wanted to make a statement. People have asked me a couple of times, what's the company that um, can can check the RH type of the baby uh, in utero for those women that are RH negative? And the company's called Unity. And you guys can look it up. Uh, But I just wanted to put that back out there. And also my my weekly reminder to check your spam folder for my emails, (laughs) please. Oh, and then uh, did we say this last time? But I, yeah, I guess we did that. I that I crossed the threshold of fifty thousand, and I want to send out a congratulations to our friend Lindsay who uh, uh, crossed a hundred thousand. Yes, That's cool. yeah, very cool. Right. So what what do you got? Um. So we had a listener um who wrote to us about fibroids. And so I thought I would start off with that. Is that good? Okay. So hi, Bliss. I've been following your IG posts and listening to the episodes on Birthing Instincts podcast since before I became pregnant. I'm grateful for all of the self-empowering education you and Dr. Fishbein are providing. Um, I am due in the future, currently 20 weeks. I live in Denver and I'm struggling to find an OB who's confident in letting me try a vaginal birth after myomectomy. I've had two. The first one is 2020 laparoptic and the second in 2022 open. Um, Based on my operative report for the first myomectomy, a one centimeter incision was made to the back of my uterus entering the cavity during the removal. Um, The fibroid was uh, four by five by 14 by five by 10. I love all the specifics. The entire fibroid wasn't inside of my uterus, but a portion of it was. My OB wants to schedule a C-section at 37 weeks, but I would like to try for a vaginal birth in the hospital. She said it's too risky and my uterus can rupture putting my baby's life, me and my baby's life at risk. Anyway, I'm feeling hopeless and I don't know if I should continue fighting for a vaginal birth or just accept her recommendation for a C-section and try to enjoy my first pregnancy. I would like to have more kids, at least one more. I'm 38 years old. Please let me know what you think. Um, Kashida Sneed. Um, quick question for you. Did did Kashida tell us what uh, where the fibroid was located? I know she said on the back, it was posterior. They made one incision. Did they say, like, did it go through all the, all the uterine wall? Did they say it was uh, pedunculated? Did they say anything? About- she said the entire... 
the entire fibroid wasn't inside my uterus, but a portion of it was. That's okay. what she said. Yeah. Okay. And so. then in the past, um, I have um, some questions from midwives that said, um, I'm curious what your protocols you have for uterine fibroids, if you risk clients out and for how big. I did a search on up to date and couldn't find any good evidence for risking a client out. Also spoke to a maternal fetal medicine and he said it was too risky for postpartum hemorrhage. So from a com from a community midwife standard, there's some confusion too about how to best support women who have fibroids and myomectomies. Um, and then here's another mama who says, I've recently discovered your show and I love it. You two are hilarious. Love that. Um, I'm, it's hard to be hilarious when you're talking about C-sections and fibroids. So I think we're doing Yeah, today's good. podcast is going to be less hilarious than usual, but I'll there'll be some that. snarkiness to it. What? I said, I'll do my best. Yeah, please. You gotta, you gotta <laughs> chime in. Cause I've got a lot of data. <laughs> um, I'm so impressed by the stories you share, the work you do and your advocacy for the birth community. I'm pregnant for the first time. Yikes. I'm planning to give birth at the San Francisco birth center here in San Francisco. Um, in my ultrasounds, they noticed a large fibroid about the size of the baby's head at 20 week anatomy scan. And they've warned me that this may interfere with the vaginal delivery. I'd love it if you would speak on this topic, um, of vaginal delivery when there are fibroids near the cervix. So some good questions. Yeah. Yeah. And you notice the central theme of all of them. Fear. Yeah. Yeah. The central theme in all of these is this could happen, this could go wrong, this is a risk, this is a problem, we can't let that happen, it's too dangerous, this might happen. Everything, every single one of the all three stories that you, you wrote, I took notes, as you know I do. <laughs> yeah, and I remember very well our very good friend, Alex Evangeliti, when she uh, was pregnant with her daughter Juno, she had um, some large fibroids, and I remember... I remember her, um, you know, as as a very experienced midwife, also not knowing whether or not it was going to actually interfere with the delivery, but she gave herself a trial of labor anyway. So I do remember that as well. And what happened? Um, she went in for a long, she went in um, and had a vaginal delivery after a very long right. labor. Yeah. So but she had a vaginal delivery. <laughs> Who knows if it had to do with a vibrator or not, but yeah. Okay. All right. Well, we're going to come at the very end of the podcast. Let's come back to these three letters because okay. they're fairly short and I took notes and we'll come back to them because I think we're going to go through this stuff and we're going to answer some questions. And of course, some questions are unknown and some questions are risk benefit analysis and some questions where you end up with what's the chance of something happening. And is that significant for this mama, but not for that mama? And how do you decide? So I need you to like, you know, interrupt me because otherwise I'll get on this esoteric role of data and I don't, nobody likes listening to that stuff. So um, help us, I, help, I, help us out here. I think the first place to start is maybe just talking about what is a fibroid. Yeah, well, I'm going to do it this way. I'm going to talk about fibroids in the non-pregnant person. Then I'm going to talk about fibroids in the pregnant person. Then I'm going to talk about, um, uh, trials of labor uh, after myomectomy and uh, that sort of thing. So let's just see if we cover everything. And you make notes of something that I'm not covering. We'll go through that too. So 
Fibroids are extremely common. They're the most common tumor seen in uh, females, and they are benign. 99.99% uh, of them are benign. There's a rare uh, malignant one called a leiomyosarcoma, not even something uh, other than just to mention it. Uh, to never be mentioned again would be fine because it's extremely, extremely rare. So fibroids are benign tumors, which means tumor doesn't necessarily mean something bad. Some people think the word tumor means cancer. It doesn't. Tumor just means growth. Uh, so they're benign growths, just like moles on your skin. You know, they're, you know, they're annoying, <laughs> but they're, but they're benign. Okay. okay. So, um, in pregnancy, about only about 30% of people with uh, fibroids will, will increase, in, uh, the size will increase in response to the hormonal changes. And that's typically occurring in the first trimester, the first early second trimester is when the volume of the fibroid will increase significantly, but only in about 30% of women that have fibroids will it, will it actually increase. Generally, they don't increase much in size in the late second and third trimester. They've reached their, their maximum. And they respond because they're estrogen-sensitive tumors. And they respond to estrogen, progesterone. It's kind of like fertilizer, which is why one of the therapies we'll get to, you know, helps to shrink them because it takes away the hormonal support for them. Fibroids are almost always asymptomatic. Um, the complications with them or the com complaints with them increase with the size of the fibroid. But ultimately, I want to say this, and I'll probably say it three times during the podcast, fibroids are like real estate. They're all about location. It's location, location, location. Element's a tasty electrolyte drink. They've been sponsoring us for a while with everything you need and nothing you don't. That means a lot of salt and, and with no sugar, as you like to say, none of the... BS, just like us. It's formulated to help anyone with their electrolyte needs. It's perfectly suited to folks following a keto, low-carb, paleo diet, but not for our pregnant patients who shouldn't be on any of those, <laughs> okay? Uh, but it's good for pregnant women. It's good for postpartum women. It's good for uh, birth workers. It's good for people who are outside working out. Summer's coming on. It's going to be hot and sweaty. Yeah, and it's grapefruit season. I just got my box. Yeah, well, not only is it grapefruit season, but but they also comes in a bunch of other flavors: yeah. watermelon, citrus, orange, raspberry, raw. Your favorite, mango chili, lemon, and chocolate raspberry. Lemon course. habanero. Lemon habanero. What is a habanero anyway? It's a it's a spicy chili. Okay. Yeah. There you go. You know, the other day I was at a very long birth, and we went to get some electrolytes for the mom to see if we could help her with some of the things that she was dealing with. And we, every one of the birth workers that was there, had some too. We're like, we all need it. Let's all have some element. Yeah, and, it, com and it comes in a little packet, so that you you don't have any waste. Right. Like Great. throwing bottles away and stuff like that. You can just use it in your reusable container. We love that. That sort of thing. So we love that. So you go to Drink Element. That's Drink L M N T dot com backslash birthing instincts and you get a free sample pack with any order great thanks element thank you so in pregnancy bliss the most common complication with a fibroid is pain and it's pain from what's called degeneration or red degeneration of the fibroid and that occurs when the fibroid grows so rapidly that it tends to outgrow its blood supply blood supply and inside the fibroid, some of the tissue then dies. Mm -hmm. And dead tissue release, releases different products 
histamines, prostaglandins, other things that that cause pain. And when you think about when you, a person has a heart attack, they often describe it as crushing chest pain. Mm-hmm. Pain with a dead fibroid or a dying fibroid is very similar. It's very, very severe. The only difference is it's obviously not a vital organ. And so it doesn't, you know, you're not going to die from a degenerating fibroid. You might die from a myocardial infarction. Um, and it's important to understand that the treatment for that generally is just being hydrated and taking aspirin scheduled for several days. Uh, and that's it's probably the safest remedy that you can do for that. That's for the pain or is the aspirin also having to do something having to do with the blood flow? No, it's Just- for the pain mm-hmm. and it's for the, preve- the, the prevention of prostaglandin synthesis, which then increases the pain. So uh-huh. it really does work fairly well. I've had many of these uh, in my career and um, that's really pretty much all you can do. Sometimes you have to go to narcotics, you know, like. Um, Oxycontin or Tylenol with codeine or whatever we used to, but very rarely do you have to do that. Um, and the uh, just to know that a fibroid degenerating, which can be severely painful, almost never affects the pregnancy. So right. it doesn't cause preterm labor. It doesn't cause the baby any distress other than obviously mom communicating with the baby, how mom's in distress. So baby's probably sad because mom's in distress, but it's not going to cause the baby any problem it's important to know that so even even you were saying the most important thing is location so no matter where the location of that fibroid it even if it's in the muscles of the uterus and it's having that dying off process it will not affect the pregnancy or initiate labor that's correct almost okay. i mean nothing is always nothing is never but almost never right? okay that's good All right. Interesting enough, most fibroids do not affect fertility or increase the miscarriage rate. There's a slight increase, but not a statistically significant increase. We'll get into that in a little bit later. But submucosal fibroids. So there's locations of fibroids. Let's talk about that. We talked about that. It's a benign tumor. We don't know what causes them. There's probably a genetic predisposition. It's more common in African-American women. There's no question. Um, but we don't really know what causes them. We don't know why some women have one and some women have 20. We we just, we don't understand that. Uh, but we do know that location is important. And uh, submucosal fibroids, which are the ones that are inside the uterine cavity, the mucus, when they say submucosal, it means underneath the mucus, which means underneath the endometrial lining. And those that are protruding into the cavity or just underneath the endometrial lining may affect implantation they may affect blood flow if the placenta happens to implant right over the top of where that fibroid is there's less blood flow there and so if you just think about it naturally there's going to be an increased risk of of miscarriage when that happens but they are also the least common of the type of fibroids you can have you can have submucosal fibroids intramural fibroids subserosal fibroids which are fibroids which are under the outside of the uterine covering the shiny stuff that covers the uterus and then you can even have pedunculated fibroids or any combination of those that you can have. But the most, the least common is the submucosal, but it's also sometimes the most problematic. And submucosal fibroids have been associated with decreased rates of implantation and clinical pregnancy and increased rates of miscarriage. So there's just to know that. So in theory, if you if these are diagnosed pre-pregnancy, I as a as you as a 
consulting physician would tell would no one likes to have a miscarriage, but I would tell you don't don't have the fibroid removed unless it's really filling up the entire cavity. Um, try getting pregnant first because even though removing the fibroid may increase your chance of a successful pregnancy, it can also increase your chance of having scarring in the uterus and causing problems where you can't get pregnant, something called Asherman syndrome and other things like that. So you want to avoid surgery unless it's absolutely indicated. Does that make sense? Yeah. You just, I thought you said before you started getting into the potential of not affecting implantation and stuff, I thought you said it doesn't affect fertility. Did you say that? I said most fibroids don't affect fertility. Okay. But Some there's mucosal an... ones are the rare ones that, that do. Okay. Got it. Right. I think that's mm-hmm. what I said. Because that's okay. what it says on my paper that I said. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So now here's the issue that, that one of your, uh, somebody who wrote in talked about, I think it was uh, Sheeta, um, uh, about what to do after a myomectomy when you're pregnant. You've had a myomectomy. And Two. so- the incidence of uterine rupture in subsequent pregnancies or subsequent labors is quite low. I'm finding it's less than one half of 1%. So one in 200. By the way, what else is one in 200? The risk of scar dehiscence after one low transverse cesarean section. And in our world, we don't think that that's a, a reason for women not to have labor. Right. But yet myomectomy carries with it this there's more fear. There's an attitude among doctors that if you've had a myomectomy, you should just have a C-section. All right. Um, many obstetricians still suggest cesarean deliveries if substantial myometrium has been entered previously, and patients considering myomectomy before childbearing should be informed of this. The truth is, and we'll get to a little bit more detail later on about what are the real risk factors for that, and can, are they predictive of anything? So we'll get to that. But I'm. This is just my little intro here. And then ultimately, vaginal delivery should be offered unless a large fibroid obstructs the cervix or leads to a fetal persistent malpresentation. There's our one of our words we don't like, but what they're talking about is an oblique lie or a transverse lie or theoretically a breach, which no one you know, in the medical world wants to deal with anyway, or, or a baby that's not descending or you know, when you have a big fibroid that's obstructing the canal, that's clearly an indication for uh you know, a cesarean section. You could theoretically wait for labor and see what happens, but obviously then you're good, you're dealing with potentially more problems. You have that look. Yeah, because I was going to say, it sounds like those women should be offered a trial of labor, but now you're saying maybe a C-section. So can you? Well, here's the deal. There, the, 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 the misinterpretation of this data and skewing of it toward getting people to have a cesarean section is what most doctors will do. Mm-hmm. So if you have a, a cervical fibroid that's three centimeters, um, they're probably going to say this, this is going to be a problem and it may or may not be. But right. it's just easier to say it is. And that's the medical model. Right. So again, I can't give a, bl- a blanket um instruction on what to do when you have a cervical fibroid. But I would always seek out at least a second opinion if your doctor thinks you'd go right to cesarean section. Um and 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 see, that's all. You know, there's the problem is we're dealing in the real world here. Yeah, but I'm thinking as as a midwife. 
is there really that much of an increased risk or is it reasonable if there's a cervical or near the cervix fibroid or a baby who's not in a stable lie to still offer a trial of labor and see how it progresses? Or is that a more risky? It doesn't I think sound it's a little bit more risky, um, especially if they're not in a stable longitudinal lie. If they're oblique or transverse, you're not going to probably want them to labor. And and ultimately, I think midwives who who feel that way should, should consult with a, a like-minded MFM like Chavira or me, or I mean, I'm not an MFM, but somebody to just get an opinion on that because you're right. They could labor and then labor stalls and then they end up with a C-section. But I don't think there's a, a significant greater, there's no greater risk of rupture or there might be a right. slightly greater risk of hemorrhage afterwards, that sort of thing. But right. you know, hemorrhage from a C-section is also an issue too. So Right. Okay. And then um, if you have a, a cesarean uh, delivery and there's a big fibroid there, should you touch it? And the general answer is no, you should leave it alone. However, if it's in the incision site or if it's a pedunculated fibroid, theoretically, they could be removed during surgery. Otherwise, you should really leave them alone because the uterus is so highly vascularized that the likelihood of, of, of leading to bleeding and other problems um, makes trying to do a myomectomy at that time a, not a good idea. Okay. Okay. All right. So. Let's talk a little bit about fibroids in the non-pregnant person. Okay. Woman. <laughs> I said that on purpose. <laughs> All right. We're not going there. I'm not going there. It's pregnant women. And that's where we're going to, even though I'm going to have to, I mean, this is coming from ACOG. By the way, I I pick on ACOG a lot, but sometimes the, as I use their data, because their data is actually quite straightforward and they do describe what's good evidence and what's bad evidence and what's mediocre evidence. And so I use them for clinical subjects such as fibroids, but they do, they have changed their language and now they don't say women anymore. Um, and I, I interchange them. So. No, I know. And sometimes it yeah. slips out, you know, it, but I want people to understand that, that um Dr. Fishbein is not going woke. <laughs> that ain't going to happen. Okay. So again, I said that fibroids are the most common solid and symptomatic neoplasm in women. All right. Now the prevalence rate of fibroids is two to three times higher among African-American women than compared to white women, Caucasian mm -hmm. women. All right. And black women typically develop uterine fibroids at an earlier age and are more likely to be anemic, develop clinically significant disease at an earlier age, and have larger uteri at the time of diagnosis. Experiences of racism can delay women from seeking care for lyome, or for fibroids. Lyomyoma, by the way, is just another term for fibroids. Mm -hmm. uh, symptoms until they are severe, and racial bias in medicine at, at the systemic and individual levels may affect the quality of diagnosis and treatment they receive. And I think that that's really true. Yeah. So there's a paper that I don't know that I'm going to get to that talks about whether or not we should do universal screening for fibroids prior to women getting pregnant. And of course, whenever I hear the term universal screening, I I, I cringe and I run to the hills yeah. because all that means is more uh, dispelling of fear and more interventions and more things that probably aren't necessary. But there is a subpopulation where universal screening at a younger age might be beneficial, and that would be in black women. Okay. To think about it. So, they, I mean, because 
if you leave them alone for a longer period of time, and we know that they're going to develop more fibroids on average and bigger fibroids on average than white or Asian or Latino women, then why are we ignoring them when the, when these things are treatable at a at a at a smaller size or 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 more uh, opportune time to take care of them if necessary? So I think it's something we should pay attention to. But if there's no, if it's benign and doing a myomectomy decreases your options in terms of providers, and it probably won't interfere with the pregnancy, uh, very unlikely to cause any issues with fertility. Why would you, why would you screen for it and why would you address it? Well, because sometimes they can get they can the location can become a problem and you can deal with it earlier um there there are operative procedures like hysteroscopic resection of a fibroid which do not lead to higher rates of potentially uterine rupture and if you have a submucous fibroid and women are having really heavy periods and they're they get ignored and the cause is you know they put them on birth control pills and they don't bother looking i'm just saying that your index of suspicion should be higher in that Got population. Got it. Right. Interestingly enough, Bliss, when prior to the 1980s, if a woman came in when she was done with childbearing and she had a fibroid, they had hysterectomies. It's just what they did. You don't need it anymore. Let's take it out. Right. Exactly. Wow. So, um, one last thing on this, racial disparities in treatment, such as higher rates of hysterectomy and myomectomy and open hysterectomy compared with minimally invasive approaches have been reported among black women compared to white women, even after adjusting for clinical factors such as uterine weight. So even when black women are treated uh, for fibroids, they're often treated with, you know, later and more aggressively and, and stuff than, than their counterparts. They don't have access to the same care. Yeah. And that's, we'll just leave it at that. It's just something we should be aware of because that's more common in them. It's like, you know, we don't check a lot of women for prostate cancer. Right. Right. But men should be checked for prostate cancer. Right. Certain populations have a higher rate of prostate cancer. Anyway, bad analogy, but just go in there. Okay. So symptoms of fibroids are often most commonly prolonged or heavy menstrual bleeding. Again, we're talking about the non-pregnant woman with or without anemia and the sequelae of uterine enlargement at the most common are the are the most common presenting symptoms what are the sequelae of uterine enlargement well they're pressure on your bladder they're protruding abdomen they're pressure on your rectum um pelvic pressure urinary frequency constipation those sorts of things when when i used to talk about fibroids to, to women who had them and what were the reasons for uh, intervention? I, there were the there were five reasons that I the five reasons for interventions of fibroids, and they were heavy bleeding to the point where it's interrupting your activities of daily living or you're anemic. Two, pain that's disrupting your activities of daily living. Three, rapid enlargement, going from you know a six week size uterus this year to a fourteen week size uterus next year. All right, that's, you know, because then you have to worry about that one rare thing that we talked about earlier. And you want to look at that. You want to take a look at that. So if the uterus is rapidly enlarging, it could be a sign of something else. Pressure on your bladder or your rectum to the point where it's annoying you. And then unexplained infertility was this vague uh, category. 
where women were having either trouble getting pregnant or or miscarrying repetitively. Even though we said it doesn't necessarily cause that, it can. And so if somebody's having that problem, but those are the five reasons. You don't remove fibroids simply because they're there. What about vanity? Well, um, that would be that would be an elective procedure like facelifting. <laughs> okay. I mean, I assume that, you know, you worked in near Beverly Hills, California. I assume that there are some people who just didn't like the fact that they felt bloated all the time. Yeah. Or they had a little pooch. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. they didn't. And yeah. that would be a reason. But then you have to weigh the, the, the options of how to treat that, which we're going to get into right now. Okay. Well, not right now, but the diagnosis of fibroids is generally made uh, it's suspected by pelvic exam, but it's made by ultrasonography or sonohysterography, which is where you do ultrasound while you're putting saline into the uterine cavity, or hysteroscopy, where you're looking directly visually into the uterine cavity, or MRI. Those are the sort of the ways that you can absolutely diagnose a fibroid. Yeah, I've palpated fibroids before, but I but for diagnosis, obviously, then you would go in and have somebody. Yeah, they're usually found on on a, a pelvic exam, um, or the uterus enlargement is, and you're not sure exactly why, and so you'll order some. And that's an indication for ultrasound. I mean, it really is. Because you want to do some mapping. You want to figure out where are these fibroids? Are they something that's potentially a problem? What's my future fertility plans? Is it affecting my quality of life right now? Is it not? Because if it's not, you generally will leave them alone. You should okay. leave them alone. Because they don't usually grow that rapidly in a year's time that following up in a year makes perfect sense if somebody's asymptomatic and not not worried about anything else at this time. Okay, so treatment options. So what happens when you find fibroids? When considering treatment options, patient-specific symptoms and severity should be addressed. If a patient describes symptoms that are neither severe nor debilitating, expectant management may be appropriate. Medical treatments primarily address bleeding symptoms. Procedural interventions and surgical approaches treat bulk symptoms by decreasing uterine mass. So in other words, for bleeding problems, you usually treat that medically. And for bulk problems, you usually treat that surgically. Makes perfect sense. Uh -huh. okay. uh, I put yay by this. So this must be something good. It says, given that the threshold and preference for treatment is individual, mm -hmm. a patient-centered shared decision-making approach should be used when devising and management strategies so that patients can make an informed decision that best meets their short-term and long-term goals. Great. See? So that's ACOG saying that. Okay. So there must be one good person in that room. All right. <laughs> of those five guys that are sitting around deciding everything. All right. They're estrogen-dependent tumors. So expectant management may be particularly appropriate in patients who do not have bothersome symptoms or are experiencing perimenopausal symptoms. So if you find fibroids in a woman who's 52 years old and the symptoms aren't that bad for her, there's really no reason to do anything because her estrogen levels will begin to fall and they and they will probably, uh, the, the, the size will probably decrease on its own. Um, so what are some medical therapies to treat bleeding? Well, one is uh, GnRH agonist or gonadotropin-releasing hormone agonist, something like Lupron. You've heard the term Lupron. It's a medicine. It's it's used uh, in many different instances. It's used for endometriosis. It can use to shrink fibroids. It's used in gender transition work. Um, but that's one. I'm not going to get into the details of these because we'd be here all day. Uh, 
A second one would be a levonorgestrone releasing IUD. So hmm. something like Mirena or the, some of the other IUDs, because progesterone is sort of an anti-estrogen. It, it thins out the blood flow, the blood supply, and possibly helps prevent the growth of the fibroid, especially if it's the, if it's affecting the lining of your uterus because it's the lining that's bleeding and then it's that's what you're trying to treat right now is the bleeding. You're not treating the fibroid, you're treating the bleeding. Okay. Birth, birth control pills is an option. Same sort of thing. Again, I've become less of a fan of them. Yeah. Uh, ever since, well, before, but confirmed by Ricky and Abby's film mm-hmm. on uh, the business of birth control. And then you can use TXA or transignamic acid, which is something we use postpartum sometimes for hemorrhaging. Right. So um, you can use that for people that are having really heavy periods. You take it, uh, I think, three times a day for the first three to five days of your period. And um, it decreases blood flow significantly. So this is an oral version because the one we use is liquid. Yeah, it's it's oral. Yeah. Mm, Okay. It comes orally. It's not it, it's not for acute bleeding postpartum. You can't oral won't work fast enough, but for menstrual bleeding it it, it works fine. Great. Okay. Mm-hmm. So um then we can talk about medical therapies for bleeding symptoms. Um GNRH agonists with hormonal add-back therapy is one other thing that you can do. So you could give Lupron or you could give ah. chronically you can give Lupron with low dose estrogen replacement. All right. Again outside the scope of today's talk, but just something to titillate people's minds should they be having this problem, something to talk about with their practitioner, right? Then you can get to things which are dealing with bleeding, but also may deal with the size of the fibroid as well. And one of them is called uterine artery embolization. Mm-hmm. You've heard that. I've had some clients that have had that done. And uterine artery embolization is consistently associated with a significant reduction in the fibroid and uterine volume that is maintained for up to five years. And what they do is they go in through your femoral artery, they follow the catheter, they direct the catheter up, just like they do with coronary angiography. They direct it up into the uterine artery, they find the artery that's feeding the fibroid, and they shoot little beads in there to, to, to obstruct the artery and cut off the blood supply, and essentially create a degenerated fibroid, which then will stop growing and may shrink to some degree. The rates of reintervention, however, um, uh, can be as high as 19 to 38%. That they'll need to do. Re- study you're looking at. So people that have embolization, say 30% of the time, are going to need another procedure down the road because it's not going to be definitive. It's not going to be the same as myomectomy and certainly not the same as hysterectomy. Yeah. Um, it, it, it Just when you described the um, procedure, I yeah. get a little weird about someone going into my femoral artery for anything. Unless I'm dying, you know? Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I mean, there must be risks to that, right? Very small risks of getting a, a hematoma down there. Um, I Again, I've had a few clients that have had it. They None of them have had... Um, major side effects from it that obviously isn't scientific that would be what's called level c evidence <laughs> but, uh, worse than it would be worse than level c evidence because it's just anecdotes but uh yeah there's always any, anything we do has complications giving birth control pills has complications as you know right 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 giving so lupron this- has complications because you give lupron chronically 
uh, it can affect your bone density. And then that's why they add estrogen add back therapy. But now you're giving medicine to fix the side effects of the medicine that you gave to prevent the side effects of the other thing. And you're chasing the tail, your tail. Yeah. 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 So this uh, is when your own personal risk benefit analysis and um, family planning and all of that comes into play and in making an individualized decision. Right. A couple of other things I don't know much about are radiofrequency ablation, uh, focused ultrasound. Uh, those things are also possible. Again, just throwing them out there in the podcast so people have heard of them. Endometrial ablation, I do know a little bit about. That's where you go in and you thermally uh, cook the lining of the uterus. It's not something you do to save fertility. It should be done only after fertility is over with and done. It works actually pretty well. Uh, cause it, it, it's an office procedure. It literally takes about five minutes to do it. Um, but when, again, this is not the scope of what we're talking about today. Surgical approaches include myomectomy, which include open, open laparotomy, myomectomy and hysteroscopic myomectomy and laparoscopic myomectomy. Okay. Uh, with laparoscopic myomectomy, there, there are some increased risks with that, including increased, uh, Recurrence less likely to get all the fibroids that are there because you have no ability to use your fingers to feel uh, for tactile. You feel a, there's small fibroid in the in the muscle, which isn't that important now, but may grow later on. If you're in there doing an abdominal surgery with your hands, you can feel it. But of course, the recovery from laparoscopic myomectomy is better than from open laparotomy. Um, and then there are theoretically risks to what's called morselization when you do a laparoscopic myomectomy. The you're trying to get a, you know, eight centimeter fibroid through a one centimeter hole. You can't do that. So you have to chop the fibroid up. You put it in a bag and chop it up. And sometimes theoretical little pieces of that could get scattered inside. Um, not usually a problem, but just something else that's to think about um, when you're making choices about which, which way to go. Um I also, I, I wrote down here that laparoscopic myomectomy is associated with less postoperative pain, shorter hospitalization, and a 50% lower risk of postoperative fever compared with abdominal myomectomy. However, short-term quality of life outcomes are similar for laparoscopic and abdominal myomectomy, and substantial improvement reported for each procedure at 6 to 12 weeks after surgery. So the just the, the risk of laparoscopic myomectomy is that you're not going to get all, all the fibroids and you're going to likely need another procedure somewhere down the road. Okay. Again, these are non-pregnant women we're talking about. And then, of course, there's a definitive procedure, which there's no chance of recurrence, and that's hysterectomy. So we have a new sponsor, Bliss. Dr. Lindsay has been our friend for a really long time. She's been a birth colleague. And her company, BirthFit, is focused on supporting women throughout the motherhood transition with general strength and conditioning programs for preconception, pregnancy, and postpartum. Isn't that awesome? Like any phase of the journey, you can use their programs. They even have a B community where you can go to if you're trying to conceive or if you know you want to in the next one to three years, which is awesome. They have a lying in program, which is in the first, you know, beginning of postpartum. Like what they say is even a day after you can start to get into this. It's 30 days, one video a day, less than 10 minutes that focus on reconnecting and honoring your body. 
in the immediate postpartum period. They use breathing exercises, visualization, belly massages. So cool. And then they have an extended program called Postpartum Program. It's a 12-week program focused on building a base level of general physical fitness with simple lifts, tempo work, and of course, breath work. And all of the work that they do um, requires no or minimal equipment. Um, So you can do it right out of your home. Um, And then of course they have the prenatal program. They have a a basic 30 day program where no equipment is necessary. I guess you can kind of test out and see if you like their their vibe. And then they have a more extensive program, the prenatal training program, which is a full-term strength and conditioning program. Um, I mean, wow. Yeah. I've I've known Lindsay for a really long time. She was a chiropractor in LA before, before they fled and moved to Texas. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, we, we support them wholeheartedly because this kind of a program is great for our, our clients and most of our listeners. Um, So you go to birthfit.com. That's B I R T H F I T.com. Use the code instincts one, all caps instincts one with a number, not the not one, but the number to get a discount on the basics prenatal program or use code instincts two to get a discount on the basic postpartum program. All right. So we love BirthFit. Uh, it's OB and midwife approved. That's right. And right. please support them. And congratulations on your pregnancy, Lindsay. Thanks for joining the team. Welcome to the Birthing Instincts neighborhood. So we'll just leave it at that. We're not going to get into hysterectomy today. Uh, just briefly, um, with hysterectomy versus myomectomy, there was a, a, a large retrospective review and the five-year cumulative incidence of a second surgery for lyomyoma after myomectomy was 23%. So they're saying that one out of every four or five women who have myomectomy may need a subsequent surgery, whereas if they have a hysterectomy, they'll have like no chance that they'll need another surgery for fibroids anyway. Yeah, but downsides to having your uterus completely removed. Right. Okay, so then I think this is the reiterating what I've already said, but when stratified by surgical approach, minimally invasive hysterectomy was associated with significant greater improvement in short and long-term symptom severity and in long-term overall health quality of life compared with minimally invasive myomectomy. So what they're saying is laparoscopic hysterectomy has less morbidity, less problems, less likely of recurrence than laparoscopic myomectomy. So they're saying vaginal hysterectomy is actually the best thing possible. But most people don't do vaginal hysterectomies anymore. The skill, one of the, it's another skill that's being lost because you don't get enough of them in your residency. You're not going to be able to do them. Um, but then laparoscopic myomectomy is becoming very popular, either using direct hands-on or even sometimes the robotic surgery to uh, take the uterus out that way. That has less morbidity than than a laparoscopic myomectomy. So it really depends on your stage of life um, and what your what your you know what's best for you individually. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So that's. A brief summary on fibroids in the non-pregnant women. Now let's get to something that we're all more interested in, and that's fibroids in pregnant women. (laughs) Okay. Uh, This is from uh, the National Library of Medicine Obstetrics and Gynecology Review uh, that I got this data. These, These paper, these links will all be in the show notes. Thank you for that. Okay. Um. 
The majority of fibroids do not change their size during pregnancy. Hmm. Interesting, huh? Yeah, you said um, in the beginning, like 30, only 30%. Yep. And they yeah. say one third, which is 30%, may grow in the first trimester. Most women with fibroids have uneventful pregnancies. Uterine fibroids can be uterine fibroids can be associated with an increased rate of spontaneous miscarriage, preterm labor, placental abruption, malpresentation, labor dystocia, cesarean delivery, and postpartum hemorrhage. Okay. Again, all of that depends on what location. It's all about location. All right. So, what are fibroids? Well, we talked a little bit before. Fibroids are benign, smooth muscle cell tumors. Extremely common with an overall incidence of 40 to 60% by age 35. Wow. Half of women. <laughs> and you know 70 what? to 80% by age 50. And the precise etiology of uterine fibroids remains unclear. Right. You know what I'm I, I'm always curious about, and I don't know if it came up in your deep dive. Do does the incidence of fibroids increase? with women who have children later or don't have children at all? Well, the answer to the first half of that question is probably yes, simply because fibroids, the longer you live, the more likely you are to develop fibroids. Right. I don't know if there's a relation to being pregnant early and not getting fibroids, which is kind of what you're asking. Yeah, I'm wondering if it has anything to do with just our normal reproductive history. But given that there's a higher incidence in in black women, I would assume not. Yeah. Because it really have to do with reproduction. So but we do know that early pregnancies uh decrease your risk of breast cancer, decrease your risk of endometriosis. Doing what nature designed you to do when nature designed you to do it <laughs> right right tends to have there 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 have to be benefits from that yeah and so when when we alter that when we delay childbearing to our late 30s or early 40s we are creating more problems and yeah and this is not a judgment we're not judging anybody who's waiting till later in life it's just interesting when you start to look at it just physiologically okay uh the prevalence of uterine fibroids during pregnancy is therefore likely underestimated um, because small ones are difficult to diagnose. Or not necessary to diagnose. <laughs> right. Probably very yeah. common. Reflecting the grow, growing trend of delaying uh, delaying childbearing, instances of fibroids in older women undergoing treatment for infertility is reportedly 12 to 25%. The relationship between uterine fibroids and adverse pregnancy outcomes is not clearly understood. Okay. Majority of fibroids, 60 to 80%, do not demonstrate any significant change in volume during pregnancy. I think we've said that many times. Um, In those that did increase in volume, the growth was limited almost exclusively to the first trimester. Well, that looks delicious. (laughs) She's eating a burrito just for the. I was trying to do it off camera. No, I want people to know that I'm busy reading and researching, and you're eating a burrito. Most fibroids are asymptomatic. Severe localized abdominal pain can occur if a fibroid undergoes so-called red degeneration, which we talked about briefly. Pain is the most common complication of fibroids in pregnancy and seen most often in women with fibroids that are greater than five centimeters in size. 
Theories have proposed to explain the severe pain associated with red degeneration. First, that rapid growth results in tissue outgrowing its blood supply, which is sort of what I discussed earlier. Mm-hmm. Outgrowing its blood supply, which then leads to ischemia and necrosis, necrosis meaning dying tissue. Mm-hmm. And the pain results from the release of prostaglandins and other t- other um, uh, things from cellular damage with the fibroid, things like histamines. And again, the treatment for that, if you have this severe pain, it's often misdiagnosed. I can't tell you how many times I've had somebody come to see me with with because their doctor told them they had they were having preterm labor or they were having a ruptured cyst or they were having maybe an appendicitis, and they come to me and I put my hand on their belly. And I touch a spot and it's extremely tender. And like the diagnosis is easily made. And my question, of course, is obvious to them. I said, did did your doctor ever touch you? Touch you? And the answer is almost always no. Yeah. They scanning with the ultrasound. They didn't yeah. put the hands on. And the treatment I found that works really well is aspirin. So we'll just leave it at that. Um, okay. Uh, the effect of fibroids on pregnancy outcome. Many studies have reported inconsistent relationships between fibroids and adverse obstetric outcomes. Although decreased uterine distensibility or mechanical obstruction may explain some adverse outcomes, the precise mechanism, the precise mechanism by which uterine fibroids induce obstetric complications is not clear. So all those things we talked about, sonal abruption, uh, bleeding, those things. We don't, they don't really understand why they happen. They, there's theories about location, affecting blood supply, affecting implantation. All that makes sense. But no one, there's really, I don't know that anyone will ever prove exactly why it happens. And, and so what if you can't prove it? What are you going to do about it? Right. Okay. So some of the outcomes are miscarriage. So we talked about the fact that miscarriage isn't very likely with fibroids, but with submucous fibroids, it can. And it's increased in, in, in women with submucous fibroids. Um, it doubles from about 7.6% to 14%. Um, and the literature suggests that the size of the fibroid does not affect the rate of miscarriage. But multiple fibroids may increase the miscarriage rate compared with the presence of a single fibroid. Makes no sense. Don't know why. Maybe multiple areas of affected blood flow, but apparently one fibroid, depending doesn't the size of that fibroid isn't necessarily the the determining factor. Yet you will find that a lot of doctors, when you find a four or five centimeter fibroid, will want to go in and take it out. Yeah, but you are you still talking about submucosal or any? Well, I'm talking about these say any fibroids, but I'm. Okay incorporating the data from the other papers as well into my brain okay. and saying that a fibroid that's in the fundus that's not close to the submucosal area is unlikely to be causing miscarriage. Right. Um, okay. The location of the fibroid may also be important. Early miscarriage is more common with women's fibroid associate located in the uterine uh, oh, corpus than in the lower uterine segment. And women with intramural or submucosal fibroids, it's, it's more, it's much more common. So a, a fundal submucosal fibroid is more likely to cause the the problem, simply because that's probably more likely where the placenta is going to implant. Most placenta is implant in the fundal portion of the uterus. 
is that, is, posterior fundal, but they, that's where they implant. Yeah, statistically, it's higher in the, in the fundus. And again, the mechanism by which fibroids cause spontaneous abortion is unclear. Increased uterine irritability and contractility, the compressive effect of fibroids, and compromise to the blood supply of the developing placenta and fetus have all been implicated. And again, those are theories that make sense. Uh, bleeding in early pregnancy is significantly more common if the placenta implants close to the fibroid. Okay. And they said 60% versus 9%. Yeah. So first trimester bleeding is if the placenta is more, and if it plants closer to the fibroid and bleeding can lead to other problems, bleeding can lead to abruption, bleeding can lead to miscarriage, bleeding can lead to preterm labor. So that all fits if a placenta implants underneath a submucous fibroid or fibroid that's affecting close enough to affect the blood supply to that placenta, those exchanges that are going on. Preterm labor is more likely to develop in women with fibroids. Multiple fibroids and fibroids contacting the placenta appear to be independent risk factors for preterm labor. In contrast, fibroids do not appear to be a risk factor for preterm labor, or excuse me, for preterm premature rupture of membranes. So they're likely to cause preterm labor, but not pre-ROM. Okay. Okay. Just another piece of fact. Um, okay. Interesting enough, there's uh, there's a table here in this paper that looks at the cumulative risk of adverse obstetrical outcomes in pregnant women with fibroids. Now, again, these are uh, the numbers are pretty good as far as the numbers of women they have in these in the data sets here. But they said for cesarean delivery bliss, they said women with fibroids had a 48.8% chance of having a cesarean delivery and a 13.3% if they didn't have fibroids, which well, is four times greater risk. But I'm, I'm just wondering where do they come up with who's got a 13% risk of cesarean section anywhere. Right. Um, but also as we've spoken about with other topics, that statistic could be high, not necessarily because there's a clinical indication, but because the provider feels more comfortable with that option. Almost certainly that's the reason. Yeah. That's why you're so smart. I mean, that's not <laughs> why you're so smart. That is, you are so smart, right? <laughs> Malpresentation, uh, the term we don't like, was 13% with fibroids and 4.5% without fibroids. So a threefold increase in the chance of I suppose baby being breach or transverse lie. Uh, another one that I highlighted here was retained placenta. 0.6% uh, without fibroids, 1.4% with fibroids. So a twofold, two and a half fold increase in risk, but still very small risk. Preterm labor was twice as high in uh, moms with fibroids. 11.2%, excuse me, 16.1% versus 8.7%. And then um, abruption uh, was 3% in the fibroid group and 0.9% in the no fibroid group. So a threefold increase of placental abruption. Again, my suspicion is that these fibroids are all fibroids that are related to where the placenta implants. So they need to be either complete transmural fibroids or submucous fibroids or fibro you know, fibroids that affect the blood supply or blood flow somehow. Interestingly enough, Bliss, there was a decreased risk in the fibroid group of first trimester bleeding, premature preterm rupture of membranes, 
or premature rupture of membranes, which is interesting that mm-hmm. the no fibroid group had higher rates of premature rupture of membranes, which is not really something I can explain. Listeners might come up with something in their brain to try to explain that, and they'll probably message me. But I really can't explain why there's less bleeding in women with fibroids in the first trimester than in the control group. But that mm. was the way it was. Okay. Um, submucosal fibroids, retroplacental fibroids, and fibroid volume greater than 200 cc's are independent risk factors for placental abruption. The presence of fibroids is associated with a twofold increased risk of placenta previa. Can't really explain that. We're talking about a small risk, twice a small risk is still a small risk, but still. It's just interesting, interesting stuff about fibroids because that's our topic today. (laughs) Yes, it is. Interesting (laughs) stuff about fibroids. Maybe I'll have to make the title interesting stuff about fibroids. (laughs) (laughs) I got to write that down. Hold on. Okay. Um, Fetal growth restriction. What do you think? Uh, not connected. <laughs> give you a clue. That's right. Fetal growth does not appear to be affected by the presence of uterine fibroids. Great. Yet, I can pretty much guarantee you that if you have fibroids, you'll be told that it can affect. Now, it's interesting. If it can't affect the placenta, why doesn't it affect growth? I don't know. But I guess the rates are not any higher. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, because babies are designed to uh, survive, and fibroids seems to be just a natural part of most women's experience. Yeah. Well, hopefully not, but yes, a lot of women have. Well, you said like 70%. Yeah, I don't think 70% know they have them. I think that 70%. Right, but we have them. Right. It's part of, yeah, we have them. Why would nature do that? Maybe because it's an it's just a normal thing. I know, but what what benefit is it? Maybe there's not. These are questions without answers. I'm just saying we we trust nature, you and I, right? Yeah. So why does nature give up to seventy percent of perimenopausal women fibroid? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe it is more environmental too. We don't we don't really know, right? Yes, (laughs) because we eat like shit and we've got environmental. Uh, toxins. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it is environmental. Maybe it is nutritional. Who knows? Mm -hmm. Um, Is anybody looking? I don't know. (laughs) Academia. Are you listening? No, no, nobody from academia is listening. I just, I just checked. (laughs) Zero (laughs) listeners from academia. Probably no money in that. Right. The the Birthing Instincts podcast is not uh, recommended reading in, in most uh, academic institutions, but or listening. Not I mean. yet. Not, <laughs> Not yet. yet. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, postpartum hemorrhage. Mm-hmm. Uh, pooled cumulative data suggests that postpartum hemorrhage is significantly more likely in women with fibroids compared to control subjects. Okay. Now, this is where they use the word significantly. Yeah. You tell me if this is significant to you. Okay. The risk is 2.5% in women with fibroids versus 1.4% in the controls. No, but it is double, right? No, almost double, right? Yeah, yeah. But, but no. To me, both of, to me, both of them seem low, Bliss. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, yeah. We have postpartum hemorrhage in higher than 2.5% of our client. Yeah. 
We had 15% of our twin population in our twin paper. Had a right. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. They have an increased risk. Yeah, too. but that's that's uh, six six times higher yeah. than having fibroids. And I think that that, you know, from from the letters that I read early on from a midwifery perspective, that's probably one of the the biggest kind of topics of conversation besides dysfunctional labor is, is it going to affect postpartum hemorrhage? So. Yeah, well, it it does, but it's still small. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, A retained placenta. One study reported that retained placenta was more common in women with fibroids. However, pool cumulative data suggests that retained placenta is more common in all women with fibroids compared with control subjects. 1.4% versus 0.6%. So again, 1% of women with fibroids, 1% to 2% are going to potentially have a retained placenta, whereas less than 1% of control group moms will have retained placenta. That, re- that number sounds about right, whereas the hemorrhage number and the C-section number didn't sound right to me. 13% just, I don't know where they're coming from with 13%. How about uterine rupture after myomectomy? The big, big fear that's out there that right. you have a myomectomy, your doctor tells you you have to have it, a cesarean section like Kushida. Um Uterine rupture after myomectomy is extremely rare. Period. (laughs) In a retrospective study of 120 women, not a big study, delivering at term following abdominal myomectomy in which the uterine cavity was not entered. So even if they went deep into the myometrium, but not into the uterine cavity, there were no cases of uterine rupture reported. Now that's 120 women. It's probably not powered enough to find those rare cases where it's going to happen. But whether the same is true, also true of laparoscopic myomectomy is not known. And in the reading that I did, it seems to be increased if you have laparoscopic myomectomy. And that's probably because you can't, you don't repair things quite the same way laparoscopically that you do when you have an open, open laparotomy. Hmm. Um, fortunately, the absolute risk of uterine rupture following laparoscopic myomectomy remains low at 0.5 to 1%. That's pretty low. That's that's pretty low. It's obviously if it happens, it's can be a potential catastrophe. But to tell a woman that she's had a myomectomy that it's it was too risky, and she needs a C-section at thirty-seven weeks because her uterus can rupture. Well, yeah, the uterus can rupture is not a false statement. Right. It's not an accurate statement either. It doesn't tell you what the chances of the uterine. Uh, the uterus rupturing are. And that's where we come with the confirmation bias and the skewing of informed consent to funnel people down a path that the doctor wants them to take. My training taught me that if it entered the myometrial cavity, that it went all the way through the uterus for doing a myomectomy, that the risk of rupture was high. And I never asked the question. How high? How high is high, right? Yeah. And I, I don't know, but it seems to me that most myomectomies do not enter the endometrial cavity. Or if you take it out, if you take out a submucosal fibroid hystroscopically, then you're not going into the, the that very far into the myometrium. 
to offer that woman only a cesarean section as the choice as the only choice you give her is not correct. And again, as they said, even ACOG said, individualization of how to proceed. They were talking about the non-pregnant uterus, but even in the pregnancy, the, the choice belongs to the well-informed mother. Yeah. Okay. Myomectomy, uh, whether such surgical inventions actually improve fertility rates and perineal, perinatal outcomes remains unclear. Okay. Um, they even talk a little bit about doing myomectomies while you're pregnant. And I would absolutely, I would tell everybody to say no. Absolutely yeah, I was not. just thinking if you were going to cover that. And then boom, there you are. Yeah, I was wondering if it was ever recommended to take care of it while you're pregnant. I, I don't see much sense in doing it at all, unless there's extreme bleeding and discomfort or fertility issues. But that's just me personally. Yeah, I've never heard of anyone having a myomectomy while they're pregnant. But they did devote a paragraph to it. And I'll just read it because it says it's rare for fibroids to be treated surgically in the first half of pregnancy. I don't think anyone's going to treat them in the second half of pregnancy, but if necessary, however, several studies have reported that antepartum myomectomy can be safely performed in the first and second trimester of pregnancy. Acceptable indications include intractable pain from a degenerating fibroid, especially if it is subserosal or pedunculated, where it's easy to get at. Mm -hmm. But I, again, the, the, the intractable pain is only temporary. Once right. the fibroid dies, the pain will go away. It may right. take four, five, six days, but it will go away. Um, and I just think that aspirin and or, you know, opiates, as much as nobody likes opiates these days, are a better choice than open surgery while you're pregnant with general yeah. anesthesia, most likely. Um, yeah, so you could, um, I guess you can, because you can have them within uh, a, a considerable distance from pregnancy, but like prescribing opiates during pregnancy seems intense. Short, short term. It's not yeah. probably that big a deal. Okay. I mean, look at, they put fentanyl in your epidural. I, again, they say that, well, it's not absorbed. Or they even give all or fentanyl um, prior to the epidural. A lot of hospitals are still doing that. Right, right, right. That's what I was saying. Yeah. We're going to talk a little bit about our sponsor needed. We love them. They have an amazing company. And you know what, you guys? Your prenatal nutrition isn't cutting it. So they redesigned the prenatal vitamin for you to be optimally nourished. They came out with a new product. I mean, I just feel like every time I turn around, they've got a new amazing product. And this one is an immune support. It's easy to take delicious elderberry powder to support optimal immune health for the whole family. You know, I was hiking the other day and I saw an elderberry bush. You recognized it? Of course not. <laughs> no. Really impressed. No, but the midwife I was with recognized it right away. 70% um, of the immune system resides in the gut. So comprehensive support is needed. Most immune support products aren't designed for all ages and stages. Their immune support is safe and effective for the whole family, kids, pregnant, and nursing moms included. So that is perfect for our followers. Yeah, so go to their website at uh, thisisneeded.com and look through their products. I mean, not only do they have a prenatal vitamin, uh, which we recommend, but they have sleep and relaxation support, stress support, hydration support, collagen, a pre and probiotic, which I think is a good thing um, yeah. for a lot of us to be taking, yeah. especially if you 
have immune issues or if you uh, had recently taken antibiotics or something like that. They have a whole thing for men. So you can men can look at that at their website as well. So again, we love their we love their sponsor. And what makes them different is optimal nutrient forms, dosages that help you thrive, easy to take at all stages of pregnancy. They were formulated with practitioners and they're recommended by over 3,000 women health experts just like us. And I was going to say that. <laughs> I stole your... You stole it. No. Okay. So go to thisisneeded.com. Just spell it out and use the code birthing instincts to get 20% off your first order. This is needed.com. I think you get 20% off every order, but just, mm-hmm. just uh, use the code word birthing instincts at this is needed.com. Thanks, needed. Thank you. Obstetric and neonatal outcomes in women undergoing myomectomy in pregnancy are comparable with that in conservatively managed women. Although women who had a myomectomy during pregnancy were far more likely to be delivered by a cesarean due to concerns about uterine rupture. The bias that comes in play, understandable. Okay. Avoid performing a myomectomy at the time of cesarean delivery due to the well-substantiated risk of severe hemorrhage, requiring blood transfusion, uterine artery ligation, and or potentially postpartum hysterectomy, interpartum hysterectomy. Myomectomy at the time of cesarean delivery should only be performed if unavoidable. And that would be the rare case where the fibroid is, is right where the incision is going to go in to get the baby. So then you can go and get the baby and you could core out. Fibroids, the, the magical thing about fibroid surgery is that that a true fibroid is, is really a separate tumor. And if you get into the right plane, you could you just you just go your get your fingers or a, a Kelly clamp in there and you just and it just dissects itself right out. It's like, you know, it's yeah, I can't even come up with an analogy, but it just comes right, it just slides slides right out. Mm-hmm. It I have to say this as a geeky uh, resident and stuff, fibroid surgery was fun. Yeah. Yeah. For me, not for the patient. <laughs> You're a surgeon. I get it. Yeah. But for me, it was fun. Yeah. Okay. So conclusion, uterine fibroids are a very common finding in women of reproductive age. The majority of fibroids do not change their size during pregnancy, but one third may grow in the first trimester. Although the data are conflicting and most women with fibroids have uneventful pregnancies, the weight of evidence in the literature suggests that uterine fibroids are associated with an increased rate of spontaneous miscarriage, preterm labor, placental abruption, malpresentation, labor dystocia, cesarean delivery, and postpartum hemorrhage, but low actual chance. Yeah. Okay. I Got added that. that. I added that part. Okay. Got it. <laughs> Pain is the most common complication of fibroids during pregnancy. The symptoms can usually be controlled by conservative treatment. Some women with a previous myomectomy may need, may need to be delivered by elective cesarean delivery prior to the onset of labor, particularly if the uterine cavity was entered. Women with previous myomectomy should probably be delivered by cesarean prior to the onset of labor, particularly if uterine cavity was entered. Um, and that's it. And that's the recommendations from ACOG. No, this is from that paper. We, we're I, I'm away from ACOG for for fibroids in pregnancy. Okay. Um, uh, this paper was, uh, I'm not exactly sure where this, I tried to look at the beginning where it came from. It doesn't, it doesn't say at the top and I, and I didn't print out the last page, so I don't know. Okay. But it's in, it's in obstetric and gynecology uh, review and it's from 2010. And uh, I'm not sure the major authors 
uh, Dr. Lee and Dr. Norwitz and Dr. Shaw. Okay. So I think I think if I know a Dr. Norwitz, I think he's actually East Coast. He's either Florida or um, uh, like Maryland or Washington D.C. or something like that. So it's an it's an American paper, I think. Okay, so their recommendation is um, if the if the surgery entered the uterine cavity that they're recommending C-section. But from the things that you told me in terms of uh, statistics and real issues, um, a trial of labor is is a reasonable choice. It, it is a reasonable choice because the, the who's going to have a problem is unpredictable. It's not, there's no, there's no right. way to generally predict that. The problem of course, is that the consequences of having a bad outcome are severe. Uh, it's not, you know, a minor problem. If you have a uterine rupture while you're in labor, it's catastrophic, usually for the fetus, not necessarily for the mother, but catastrophic for the fetus. And so, if we're talking about a risk somewhere between a half and 1%, uh, I can't find data that specifically says that when they entered the uterine cavity, what the risk is. I'm sure there might be data out there. I did look for it. I, did, I just couldn't find a paper that that weeded it out. Didn't really do yeah. that. I was hoping that one of the graphs would say, you know, subserosal fibroids, here's the risk, sub in, intramural fibroids. There, couldn't find one like that. But I would say that if you had a myomectomy that was large, that entered the uterine cavity, that it's not, and it's in the fundal portion of the uterus, it's not unreasonable to consider a cesarean section. Why Why are you recommending that more so than uh, for a trial of labor for a VBAC? Because of where the incision is made in the uterus. The incision is made for, I'm not, I'm not talking about a lower uterine segment fibroid. I'm talking about a fundal fibroid, the part where the thick muscle is, it's doing the work. Got it. The lower part of the uterus is purpose is to sort of get out of the way. So it's going to be working harder in labor because of, of that muscle. And those fibers are contracting more and scar and scarred muscle does never, never becomes real muscle again. Got it. Yeah. Okay. So you, you don't even have. You know, if, if it's a through and through, you don't have any muscle in that layer that's actually still intact. Whereas if you do a intramural fibroid, you may go within millimeters of the endometrial cavity, but you still have some muscle that wasn't harmed. And you've seen the miraculousness of the uterus and how, you know, how thin it gets. Mm-hmm. You do an ultrasound of a term uterus and the uterus is like two millimeters thick. And right. it can push it can push an eight pound baby through a vagina. It's remarkable what nature can do. Yeah, it's miraculous. Okay, so uh, then I have a case, uh, not a case, but a systemic review of a trial of labor after myomectomy. So this may answer some of your questions. <laughs> Lastly, this is the last part that I have. Right, okay. uh, this is an abstract from Italy. Well, it's actually I have the whole I have the whole paper, but I'm reading the abstract and it says. Um, the risk of uterine rupture in the subsequent pregnancy after myomectomy is reported in the literature to be about 0.7 to 1%. So that's consistent with what we just said. Mm-hmm. They did a systematic review of the literature is their methods. So that's level B evidence. It's not consensus opinion, but it's not randomized controlled trials. It's a systemic review of the literature. And what they found 
was that a trial of labor after myomectomy is associated with a 0.47% risk of uterine rupture. And I did the math, that's one in 213. There were no, no identifiable risk factors among the variable study. So I'm pretty sure they looked at the location of the fibroid. They did not find that to be an identifiable risk factor. Okay. Now, they didn't have that many ruptures, again, to go by. But they're making a statement here that it's 1 in 200 or less, which is similar to VBAC. So why are we so panicked about these sorts of things? Right. And that, you know, and that's why I love when you make me do a dive into these topics, Bliss, because sometimes we just end up repeating stuff over and over and over again because that's we've been always doing it that way. But yes. we never really look as to why are we doing it that way. Right. So they in their discussion, and they've got some very valuable information in here. The most significant finding was that the incidence of uterine rupture was 0.47% in women who experienced a trial of labor after myomectomy. Only two of the seven uterine ruptures occurred after 36 weeks. Uh-huh. So some of the uterine ruptures, there were only seven uterine ruptures in their paper, but uh, five of them occurred before 36 weeks. So scheduling a woman for a C-section at 37 weeks isn't necessarily going to prevent anything bad from happening. Now, there may have been more uterine ruptures down the road, but we don't know because the C-sections were done at 37 or 38 weeks. So it might have prevented some by doing those C-sections. But five out of seven of the ruptures they had occurred before anyone would have intervened anyway. Hmm. Okay. Um, the instance of uterine rupture was 1.52% in women who experienced a uterine rupture without labor even higher than during a trial of labor after myomectomy. So it was three times higher. Therefore, uterine rupture may not be significantly influenced by a trial of labor after myomectomy. And so this option could be considered in pregnant women as feasible and relatively safe. Great attention has been given to the literature to the operative findings at the time of myomectomy, such as the suture technique used to repair uterine defects, use of cautery, electrocautery, and the entry into the cavity and via laparoscopic versus uh, laparotomy. Despite the lack of evidence regarding entry into the uterine cavity, many obstetricians still seem to strongly seem to be strongly influenced in their decision-making by this factor as reported by a guy named Weibel. Um, so interestingly, they didn't find anything and yet that's still consistently being thought of as something that doctors will intervene for. All cases of uterine rupture followed the removal of an intramural myoma. So there were no ruptures after subserosal myoma or pedunculated myoma, but a fibroid that was involving the uterine wall, which makes perfect sense. And they say this does make clinical sense as probably the full thickness of the uterus was damaged requiring repair, which is actually what I sort of just described a minute ago. Yeah. In some series reporting the outcomes of pregnancies after the my, after myomectomy, a high rate of scheduled cesarean delivery between 36 and 39 weeks was described in particular after laparoscopic approach, leading to a possible underestimation of the incidence of rupture. And I would say that that's true, but also that I think that there's less confidence in, in women who have a laparoscopic myomectomy that they, the uterus can withstand labor than if they have an open myomectomy, which is in, which is interesting because 
where are these doctors getting that information? And if that's the case, then why are they all doing laparoscopic myomectomy in women right. who want future fertility? Hmm. Right. No difference was seen regarding use of electrocautery, uh, which is interesting. So bovi, using the bovicautery was something that initially people thought may damage more tissue. Apparently, it doesn't seem to have any issue. It's interesting to consider that 71.4% of uterine ruptures occurred in women who received two-layer closures, whereas only 286 occurred in women with a single-layer closure during their myomectomy. Now, that may reflect the depth of the myomectomy. They don't, they don't break that down. But this result suggests that the number of suture layers may not completely protect against uterine rupture. Okay. So it probably, again, more about the location, location, location of the fibroid. <laughs> And does it really involve the myometrium? And what part of the myometrium? Is it the fundus? Is it the lower uterine segment? How to make that decision is going to be very difficult. And always medical doctors are going to lean towards surgery. They're going to lean towards scheduled in your C-section because they are they are they are risk averse to risks that they can't control. We said that over and over on the podcast. Sort of a new mantra, I guess. Have to get a new t-shirt down the road. If Brooke is <laughs> Brooke is listening. <laughs> Uh, the mechanical stress of labor may be considered in clinical practice a risk factor for uterine rupture in women with scarred uteri after myomectomy, but no definitive study has proven this relation. Most of the cases of uterine rupture reported occurred before the onset of labor. Repeating myself, but I found this stuff. Our data, and then they go on to show, say that our data is limited by the small number of uterine ruptures, so they're honest about the fact that their data isn't great. And then and finally... In conclusion, our results suggest that uterine rupture after myomectomy is a complication that is difficult to predict. It can happen at any time during pregnancy, often in the second and early third trimester. Therefore, scheduling a cesarean delivery between 37 weeks, zero days, and 38 weeks and six days, as suggested in some national guidelines, may prevent some cases of uterine rupture, but not all women with prior myomectomy. But not in all women with prior myomectomy. A randomized study of a trial of labor after myomectomy versus planned cesarean at term would be useful. There, has, there isn't one. Of just letting women with myomectomies go and put them in one category and then sectioning women at 37 and a half, 38 weeks, another category and checking outcomes. But apparently there is no study that's done that by a randomized uh, controlled trial. The question remains, how to identify women with a higher risk of uterine rupture after myomectomy? And they say, our trial data our data suggests that a trial of labor after myomectomy could perhaps be as safe or as risky as a trial of labor after cesarean delivery, which gets back to what you said earlier, right. about one in 200 of the risk of scar dehiscence. And then, of course, the risk to the injury of the baby is only about one out of six of those. So that's where I come up with my one in 1200 risk. And I think that that would be the same for, for uterine uh, a myomectomy rupture. Although theoretically, if it's a fundal rupture, that could be more catastrophic than a lower uterine segment rupture. These data suggest that a trial of labor after myomectomy might be considered a feasible and possible safe option for pregnant women with prior myomectomy, and that these women may be treated similarly with the, as to those with a prior cesarean delivery. And I, and I added that we have to overcome the uh, bias and attitude of the medical community, which is to uh, section anybody who's had the, you know, if they've had the word myomectomy in their history, um, their doctor's going to tell them they need a section and they need to look deeply into that. And yeah. hopefully this podcast will be of help to them and the uh, show notes um, can lead them in the right direction. 
Great. Thank you again for doing that deep dive. Um, as always, I learned something new, which is great. And I'm sure that our listeners will too. So if we go back real quickly to your three letters. Yeah. Because she'd had one large fibroid removed. She wants to have 37 weeks. Uh, her doctor wants to do a C-section because the uterus can rupture and it's too risky. Um I don't know enough to say about Kashida's op report, but I would take a real good look at it, and I would determine if it's if where and when that fibroid was, and did it go through and through. And if it didn't, then then Kashida, you'd have a perfectly honest opportunity to look elsewhere for a practitioner who might support you. Right. Um, the other one said you said it was too risky because of a cause of postpartum hemorrhage. Uh, we just found that that actually isn't true. Postpartum hemorrhage rate was doubled, but it was only still only 1.4% or something like that, or 2.5% from 1.4%, so not even doubled. Not even, then, the, not even the normal rate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, everyone should have fibroids. They'll have less bleeding. No. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is the problem with looking at numbers in studies yeah. and stuff like that. You just don't understand. When they show you things like they had a C-section rate of 33% or the RIVE trial had a 18% C-section rate, you know, who are they talking about? Yeah. They're not talking which, about what goes on in, in most hospitals in the country. Yeah, which is um, a really good foreshadowing for next week's episode because we are bringing on Dr. Shavira to talk about studies. So that'll be next week. Make I sure am you so excited can. because I'm a math geek and he's a math geek. and So excited. Yeah. <laughs> and the last one you said was about the woman at the San Francisco Birth Center who has a at 20 weeks has a five to six centimeter fibroid and she's being told that's going to interfere with her vaginal delivery. And there's absolutely right. no, absolutely no reason to say that to somebody at 20 weeks. Right. And even if it is near the cervix, she, it's a reasonable choice to do, um, trial labor. Yeah. Well, let's see what the baby does. Let's see what the position of the baby before we start. I mean, you could say that there's a possibility, but I get, the reason that she's writing to you or whatever is because she's sort of freaked out about it because they yeah. probably didn't say it in a way that says, listen, there's a possibility later on that this may prevent your baby from descending, but we'll check that when you're, you know, when you're in your last month of pregnancy, we'll take a look and we'll see and give you a better assessment at that time. But right now there's no way for, for us to tell you anything that makes sense. That would be reasonable, but that's not what they said. Yeah. And from my perspective, so what? You don't know unless you do a trial of labor. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know how that how that fibroid is going to respond to a baby coming through the pelvis. You just don't know. So I think it's reasonable in those situations to say, um, you, you if you want to try and have a vaginal delivery out of the hospital, that's a totally reasonable choice. Or in the hospital, for that matter. Right. right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because, I mean, you're not talking about something. So what will happen is if the, the cervix is obstructed by the fibroid is the labor will stop progressing. That's right. Right. That's right. Right. So we talked about fibroids. We talked about after after fibroid surgery. I think uh, this horse is no longer breathing. And uh, hopefully that 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 this was informative to the, to the birth geeks that are listening to our podcast and our fellow travelers. <laughs> Thanks so much for doing that. And um, good luck with your surgery this week. We'll, you'll be on our prayer list. And uh, I hope that this is the last time that you have to deal with any of this. And thanks for being my partner. Thanks for being my partner, Blister. All right, yeah. everybody. Until next time. 
Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 